This is Lead Minister Nathan Pelahowski of RSCC. I just want to welcome you to the RSCC podcast. Here's something I want you to know. I want you to know that you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says that you matter when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Today I hope this message challenges you and encourages you to take your next faith step. Well, good evening. Welcome to Thursday Night Service. Hey, let's give a round of applause to... Michelle and Trudy for stepping in and singing for us. Thank you ladies so much. Hey, this weekend is 4th of July and we'll have a video and some tributes in the service. So what I want to do right now is, it's obviously not 4th of July, so I want to pray real quick for our country and just pray for everything and then we'll get rolling. So, so join me in prayer. God, we are so thankful that we get to meet in church, that we have the freedom to do that. Father, as we come to 4th of July, we know that America is not the center of the world, God, but we are so blessed that, that you work in us in this country, God. And right now, sometimes things aren't going the way we want them to be, Father, but we we, we are so blessed to be in this country. We have men and women who have served this country to have the freedoms that we have, such as religion and speech, God. And, and we pray that we become a nation who turns back to you, the God who gives us ultimate freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from anxiety, freedom for, from our past, God. So we, we pray that on the 4th of July as we celebrate this country, we remember that you are the source of ultimate freedom and ultimate hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are in week three of the series that we're calling Judges, and I know I could have got a little bit more creative, but I thought, man, this book's been around for thousands of years, and they didn't get that creative, so we'll just call it what it is, Judges. And if you're new with us, if you haven't been here, I'll give you a little quick synopsis of what's going on. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and they form the nation of Israel, and they're going into the promised land that God has given them, and it's a time period before kings, so there's no kings, and all they had to do was obey, and everything would be okay. They do everything but obey, right? They keep doing over the things they're not supposed to do over and over again. So we see a familiar cycle happen in Judges, right? This is the cycle. It's the cycle of sin in Judges. So by the end of this series, you're going to get so tired of me showing this to you every week, but you're going to be an expert on Judges because you're going to, when someone comes to you and says, hey, what is Judges about? This is what you're going to say. Well, it's about they, they sin, and then there's consequences, and then there's sorrow, and then there's deliverance, and then there's peace. This is the cycle that happens over and over again. The Israelites sin, they do something wrong, they don't obey, they, they cry, there's a consequence, they cry out to God. God sends deliverance in the form of a judge, and that's why this is called judges. And, and then the, they go through this cycle all over again, over and over and over and over again. But this is the cycle that you see in, in Israel and seeing judges and one of the reasons why I picked this book, and I'll be honest with you, some weeks I wish I wouldn't have picked this book because it's kind of hard to preach from at times. But one of the reasons I picked this book, and I felt God leading me to this, is because of how real the author is. The author of Judges keeps it real, and I like people who keep it real. They are to the point, they are honest, and they say this is what happens, and this is what happens if you sin, and this is what happens if you disobey, and they just keep it real. But there's, they often, they also show this real vulnerable and real insight of the brokenness of humanity and how that even though we'll get deliverance that we, we just find ourselves in, in this cycle over and over again and, and in 12 times think about this 12 different judges 12 times that God delivers them and they get to see God work in, in this amazing way and, and sometimes it's by a left-handed man sta stabbing a fat king like we talked about last week and sometimes it's by this judge who has long hair and his strength comes from his hair right but God delivers them 12 times 
And they get a front row seat to it. And God delivers them. And what do they do? They praise God. And they're like, this is amazing. But then some time goes by. And as the time goes by, that amazingness kind of loses its luster. And they kind of get like, eh. Like, then they go through this. They start going through this again, right? So what they do is after some time, and sometimes it's years, and in, in Ahud's example to now, it's 80 years. There's an 80-year gap between one chapter. But they start, the Israelites start drifting back into old struggles. And even though they know how bad it is. Is that, is that ever you, right? You know, okay, so imagine you're on a diet, right? Anybody ever dieted, right? And, and you know, like, hey, Butterfingers or Snickers or Hershey's, like, they taste good. Like, I want them. But you know, like, if I'm going to get to my beach body by, by, by July, I got to stop eating those. But you keep eating them because you know how bad it is. Or you're like, you're like hey, I want to stay in shape and I don't want to stay on this diet. But I mean, I go by flavors every single week on the way, every single day on the way home. And they got like the best ice cream around. Like they do things they know they shouldn't do. But we do this too, right? Even though we know how bad it is, right? When it comes to like, you know, sometimes it's an addiction, a substance. For some, for some of us, that, uh, this bad thing that we know, it, it's a person. Uh, there's a name attached to it, meaning we know this relationship's not really good for us, but we re- there's just something that draws us back. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes it's doubt. Sometimes it's anger. We're like, I know this is bad for me, but we keep drifting back into a situation. So you find yourself in a bad spot. Why? Because you drifted into the familiar place, right? You, you drifted into that cycle. You drifted back into that f- familiar cycle of again, right? Again and again and again, I did this. Again, the Israelites disobeyed. Again, I did what I know I wasn't supposed to do. But here's what I want to say for any of us, because I, I believe this is us. I believe it's you. I believe it's me. I believe it's everybody listening online or on podcast. I want to say this. When you find yourself in the cycle of again, God can deliver you. Judges proves that to me. If you want me to see that, just go through this whole book of Judges. You're going to see that even when you find yourself doing that one thing you know you're not supposed to do again, God can deliver you. And I think churches need to preach that more. I think they need to teach that more. And yes, there's consequences to bad behavior. and There's consequences to sin. But even at your worst moment, even at the darkest moment, even when you think you're so far from God... God can still deliver you. And I think someone needs to hear that because you need real hope today. Because why? You got a real life waiting on you when you leave here. We get it. When you leave here, we get it. You're going in this world and it's a crazy world and you have a real life. But you also have to understand that even though this world is powerful, God offers real power to change your life. And Judges proves that. So what we're going to see today is we're going to look at another judge, and this is one of my favorite judges to talk about, and here's kind of how it's going to be constructed. We're going to be in Judges chapter 4 and 5. So Judges chapter 4 tells us all about the judge. Judges chapter 5 is this judge's account of how what we're about to read goes down, and it's a song or, or a poem, if you will. So we're Judges 4 and 5, if you have your Bibles. If not, in in the RSCC Family app, you can find all the notes here. But what we're going to see is how we're going to do this is we're going to read it. We're going to go through it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to get to a point where we're going to talk to women a little bit. Men, you're going to pay attention here, but we're going to be talking to women, right? And then we're going to talk to some men. And while we talk to the men, women, you're going to pay attention. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to everybody and see how this applies to all of us. But what we're going to see today is God's going to call some Israelites to step up and go. Step in and step, step out and step up, right? And, and we're going to call this conversation for the sake of the day, roll call. You know, and if you're in the military, there's roll call. 
When I think of roll call, I think of high school and football, and every year we would go in the summer to, to this uh, college, and we'd go to football camp, and, and they would make you wake up at 7 a.m., and they would roll call, and if you miss breakfast, you were running for a long time, like, like hey, they, they'd call your name, and you said, hey, I'm here, right? So what we're going to look at today is God's going to call some people, he's going to expect their hands to be up, but also at the same time, God's going to call on you. And guess what he's going to expect? Your hand to go up and to step up and to step out, right? So we're going to look at that today. So Judges chapter 4, verse 1, and we get in this familiar cycle we know real quickly. And it says this. Again, there's that cycle. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ahud was dead. So they forgot about Ahud. Remember Ahud, the left-handed man who stabbed in fat kings? They forgot about him about 80 years, right? 80 years they forgot. After 80 years, they forgot about him. So they did wrong in the Israelites. The, eyes, the Israelites did wrong in the eyes of God again. So here's what happens in the next couple verses. It's going to say this in Judges verses 2 through 3. Uh, verses two through three. says this, The Lord sold them in the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. So now... Last week was the Moabites, now it's the Canaanites, right? So they're slaves in, in, in Canaan who reigned in Hazar, Sisera, that's who we're going to look at today. The commander of his army was based in Horosheth because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20, 20 years. They cried out to the Lord, then they cried out to the Lord for help. Little disclaimer, there's going to be a lot of names in here and I'm going to say them the best I can. I'm probably going to mess up, so don't give me, you know, just bear with me today. But here's what's happening. Again, the Israelites are in the promised land. And because of the way they're, li they're, the way they're living, God allowed a foreign king to be in charge. And, and we're not really talking about the king today, but we're talking about Sisera, right? This commander, the, this ruler of, the, of an army. And what it says, what we know about him is he, he cruelly oppressed. And if you can kind of dive into that, what that meant was, was he was a bad guy. He would do things to the enemy's women, such as rape them and enslave them and, and do bad things to them. He would kill the Israelites. He, he created chaos in their lives. But what he's known for is he's a leader of an army. He had 900 chariots fitted with iron. Again, the, these tanks, these modern, the, they're modern day tanks and they would allow many foot soldiers to go into battle and they would allow, you know, they could use these iron chariots and go into battle and they could just wipe out men quicker and quicker. The Israelites didn't have this technology. So he's a bad man with a strong army and strong weapons. Doesn't always mix well. But that's where the Israelites are. But the story continues, right? We're going to meet our judge in a second. Now Deborah... That's our judge, a prophet, the wife of Lepideth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So here's our judge, Deborah. And Deborah's important for a couple reasons. Deborah was the only female judge. All right, so of the 12, she's the only female judge. Also, Deborah was a prophet. Right? What does that mean? That means God spoke to her and she spoke to God's people. Also, we see that she was so respected that men and women would come up to her to the, you know, the get issues solved in their lives. She, they'd go to her for wisdom and guidance and to, to solve disputes. But this is a big deal. And why it's a big deal is she's a woman. Women at this time in history, if you know anything about history, didn't have much rights. They didn't have much power. But what we see here is God's flipping this narrative and he's using women in a role that women had never really been used before. And this was new. 
But, but she's the judge. So we, we see Deborah, and we'll, we'll talk about her a little bit later here. But we see her, and she gets to work, and the verses continue, right? We're going to go right through it. Through it. She's sent for Barak, son of Abaddon, from Gedesheth, and Nepetali. I don't know. I messed that up, but it said a lot, right? Nepetali. And she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Roll call time. The Lord is calling you. Go take with you 10,000 men of Nepetali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabar. I, the Lord, will lead you. And Sesera, the commanders of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak, God is telling you, take 10,000 men and go fight this man with 900 iron chariots. I know you're outmanned, I know you're outgunned, and I know you don't want to do it, but God has told you to do it. Well, Barak, he's like, hey, I'm not really digging this plan, Deborah. Like, come on, like, Debbie, give me some more advice and give me something else here. They got 900 iron chariots. You want me to take these 10,000 weak guys and go fight them? I'm not digging it, right? I know God's told me, but come on, you, 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 gotta, you gotta help me out here. So it kind of continues, right? He, he hears this, and he's like, okay, I'll go, Debbie, only if you go with me, right? I'll go if you go with me. But if you don't go with me, guess what? I'm not going, right? I'm not going to go. And she says, well, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. Barak, you're not getting the honor. Guess who's going to get the honor? A woman, right? The Lord will deliver Sesera into the hands of a woman. Right? And this is kind of where it gets a little tricky. A lot of times this is preached that Barak just didn't have the strong enough faith. I don't think it's that way because if you do a deep dive on Barak and you find him later in the Hall of Fame of Faith, I think here's what he realizes. He realizes who Deborah is, right? So he realizes that Deborah is close with God. And he's like, if you're that close with God and God's speaking to you, this is a battle. I can't win by myself. I want you to come with me. So whether it was, and then some people believe it's because of fear. He was fearful. And he's like, I, I don't have enough courage, so come with me. Regardless if it's fear if it's courage, if he realizes who she is, he says, come with me. And this fact is so important. The fact that he demanded she go with him showed that he trusted the authority God had given her. He's like, Deborah, I, I get, uh, like, I, fear or not, I think God's given you authority. I think God is working through you. So it, it kind of continues. The story continues once again, right? And it says, Then Barak summoned Zebulun and Nepali and, and 10,000 men and went up under this command. And Deborah also went up with him. So he starts rallying these troops. He starts getting all some of these other tribes. And they're starting to get their 10,000 men, right? And, and that they're just doing the work they need to do. And, and they go up on a mountain. And this is what happens next. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, roll call moment. This is the day the Lord has given Sesra into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? That's a really important line, right? Really important line. And the Lord routed Sesra and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sesra got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So Debbie tells Barak, hey, it is time to go. God has given you this day. This is the day that God wants you to go and do this. Take your men and go fight Sisera. So they come running down this mountain, the mountain of Tabor, and they look like a bunch of wild men, right? They're just coming with full energy, right? And they're outmanned. They're outnumbered. They're, they don't have as good of weapons, but they're trusting Debbie, and they're trusting God's going to take care of them. So they start running down, and guess what? 
They start kicking some booty, right? They, they kick their booty. They, they start, they, they, it says they routed them, right? It's like when the Cincinnati Bengals used to play the, ba- uh, the Patriots back in the day. Like, they routed them, right? It wasn't even close. How? How did these weak Israelites do this? There's a little key phrase. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? This is where the Bible's so cool. We, can, we, we don't just get to, you know, hear the stories. We get to read the stories and we, get to, we can see what's going on. We know that in chapter 5, Deborah's song, she says something about this fight. Well, what does she say about this fight? She said, the earth shook, the heavens poured, and the clouds poured down water. What does clouds pouring down water mean? Rain. Caesar and his army took camp on the base of the river that was there. Why? Because it was dry season. And, and in dry season, you don't expect it to rain. So if you can, if you can take base at, at the camp of a river or by some water, it's really advantage for you. You can feed your troops. You, have, you, have, you can water your troops. You can bathe. You can clean. It was really good advantage. But remember, they have 900 iron chariots. Their great advantage was those chariots. So what God does is he takes that advantage they have over the Israelites. Brings on some rain like we've been experienced, right? And all of a sudden it starts, it says it starts pouring, right? It just, it's like a storm like you've never seen before. And I'm not real smart, but I know horses pulling chariots in mud doesn't really work. So all of a sudden these 900 chariots become dead weight. They can't use them anymore. And now they got these 10,000 wild men coming down with power from God, right? And they start attacking them and they win, they rout them. But meanwhile, Sesera, he's a chump, he takes off. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving these guys behind. So it says he fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebar, the, the Canaanite, because, because there was an alliance, a treaty between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the family of, of Hebar, the Canaanite. A lot of names. Jael's husband's family had a treaty with a king, this foreign king. Basically, we would protect you and take care of you. Sesera knows this, so he flees, and he flees to Jael's tent. Well, Jael, her husband's family may have that alliance. She doesn't, but she does something a little sneaky here. She, she brings him in. She gives him some food, makes him feel good, gives him some water. I think it was milk in the, in the story. She makes him feel good, right? She sings him a lullaby. Little baby Cesar falls asleep. And this is what happens next. Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quickly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? She's like, she walks out, she sees Barak. She's like, hey, nailed it and walks out, right? And talks to him a little bit. And, and she's like, listen, Cicero is in my tent. He's dead. And it's over. And it says there's peace in Israel for all these years. Crazy story, right? It is wild. It's just as wild as last week. Like, what is going on? I think it's interesting. Because remember, Deborah said a woman would get the credit here. Who killed Sisera? A woman, right? I think that's pretty cool. So the question becomes, and the hard task becomes, as we look at this story, as we look at this judge, as we look at this encounter, what do we learn from Barak? What do we learn from Jael? What do we learn from Deborah? What do we learn from this and what can we take from it? So there, there's a couple things I want to, there's four things I really want to look at and talk about. And, and it's going to be, for some of us, it may not be what we like to hear, but it, it's what I think needs to be said today and what God wants us to hear. So here, here's the first thing we re- learned that just jumps off the pages. 
We can't weaken the roles of women. Right? You see that. And you see that. And I'm a history buff, so I talk about history all the time. If you go through the history of the world, who's been mistreated? Women have. Right? It's just the reality in this country and other countries and sometimes still in this world. And they've been underappreciated. They've been kind of taken advantage of. But what's interesting is if you start going through Scripture... You start seeing women are in this narrative and they do amazing things. You got Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land, right? And and one of the things he does before that in the book of Joshua, he kind of helps lead the Israelites to uh, knock down the walls of Jericho. And in that story, there's a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. And she actually hid spies so they wouldn't be killed. And and that allowed them to go back and talk to Joshua and tell her what's going on here in the city in Jericho. And this very woman actually would be a woman that would find herself in the genealogy of Jesus. She's one of four women mentioned in the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. And her great-great-grandson happened to be a boy named David. And David happened to be the same David who killed Goliath. And David happened to be the same king who becomes the king of Israel who is, says he's a man after God's own heart. Then you got a woman named Esther in, in, in the Old Testament. And Esther, you know, her story is a little wild, but she becomes queen and she saves the Jews from a genocide, right? And then you got women in the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament like Lydia, who helps advance the gospel. Then in the New Testament, at the very beginning, you have a young teenage girl named Mary, who's a virgin who God chooses to use to be the mother of the Savior, Right? And then you see at the end of Jesus' life, as the re- you know, he's crucified, and three days later, who are the first ones at the tomb? The women, right? You see women taking this narrative of God doing amazing things in Scripture through him, right? And we can't weaken the roles of women. And as you look at Deborah's story, if there's any story in the Bible that points that to be true, it's got to be this. Deborah was awesome. And she was, she was a prophet. Come on, there's not very many women prophets in the Bible, but she was a prophet. She was someone that was respected, that people would go to, to lead them for guidance. She was so respected that Barak, who was probably this warrior guy, strong leader, says, I won't go unless you come with me. She was awesome, and and she did amazing, amazing things. And with her, like, you can't ignore that. You can't ignore how important she was in this story. And I know in five minutes, I can't end the debate amongst church history and the thousands of years about roles of women in church. But I'm going to tell you where we stand. One, we believe that men and women are equally gifted, equally called, and equally anointed. We believe that, right? We believe that and we see that with Deborah and we see that we understand that men and women both play a role. We wouldn't be half the church we are without the women in this church. We wouldn't be half the church we are without the men in this church. But it wasn't men who's been oppressed for hundreds of thousands of years. It's been the women. So we're going to talk about them for a little while. So when you go back to Deborah, and she was like this respected leader. And she was amazing. And she was, God used her in amazing ways. And what we have to realize was she was placed in her role by God and was gifted by God to lead I added period here. Not, there's, there doesn't need to be a little footnote here. Well, she was a woman and she can't lead men over 12. There there's no, doesn't need to be any footnotes. It's just she was placed there by God and gifted by God to lead. Right? And we see in her story 
it just screams off the pages that God has an important role for women in the kingdom of God. That God has an important role. That she, women play this important, important role. And, and with that, I know there's an implication because I'm saying something. I'm implying something. And what I'm implying is this is so important. That women have access to every spiritual gift men have access to. And the reason I have to say that, and the reason we have to talk about that, is because there's this myth or this theology, and I call it mythology, because when, when myth and theology mix, it's called mythology, right? And, and there's this myth that, that's been created. And, and if we're honest, sometimes it's generational, sometimes it's traditional, sometimes it's created because we're regional, where we're located, right? And it's just all that creates mythology sometimes. And one of the myths in church throughout history has been that men are the only ones who get the deep, rich, theological teaching, right? They are the ones who are the spiritual gifted ones. And women, you're here. Hello, good to see you. Stay on the side. Go home. Sew some pillowcases. Be quiet. And what we do by doing that is we, weak, we weaken their roles. We make them lesser. And I'm going to be honest, I was raised by a very strong woman, right? So I'm not down for that. I didn't live like that. Like, if I was getting into nitty gritty, like if I was just like saying like, who let me down more in life? Well, my mom was always there while men constantly came in our lives and let us down, right? We've seen that. And when I went and looked, to, you know, in college, when I was finally going to marry someone, I was like, Here, here's what Proverbs says. And actually in Proverbs 31, when it talks about a wife, it talks about strength. So when I wanted to find a wife, I wanted to find someone who wasn't weak. And uh, I didn't have that in my wife, right? When, I, my, when we have our daughter in October, you better believe I'm not going to raise her to be a weak woman, right? I, I, I'm not down for that. When we talk with Ashley and Adam about youth and their youth group, we're not going to teach them to raise weak women. Right? And I don't want to be in a church that raises weak women. Right? I'm not down for that. I don't get by that. And we can't weaken the role of women in the church. Have we at times? Absolutely. Not this church. I'm talking about church as whole. But have we, have we done that? Have we limited them when they didn't need to be limited? Absolutely. But also at the same time, I respect God's kind of hierarchy of how things are supposed to work. Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has established certain positions that he wants men to play and others he wants women to play. He's established that. In the Old Testament, actually, there was one role specifically that women could not do. What they could not do is they could not be priests, right? And, and even in the story of Deborah, you see some things about how God has designed it. When she's introduced, she's introduced as the wife of Lepideth. And what that would do is that would, in the Hebrew, in the way that it's constructed, meaning she's introduced as her husband is the lead of the household, right? But also, when Barak says, I won't go, she says, I'll go with you, but you're still leading the army, right? So she respected those roles that God has given. And then in the New Testament, you, you can see again and again, and we talked about it, women doing amazing things in the New Testament, and God using them in amazing ways. And one of the reasons the church spread is because women helped it spread, right? They did all these things. But... And Timothy, when Paul starts talking to Timothy about establishing churches, there's this very specific role that he says are for men. And that role is one role, right? And, and right before the chapter, in chapter 2, it talks about women sitting down and being quiet. That's an unfortunate break in the chapter, right? Because it's not the end of the line. It was having these women who were trying to do roles that they weren't supposed to do, right? So there's one role Paul talks about. Second, in Timothy 3, you can find it. It's the role of an elder, 
But that doesn't mean they're not gifted. That doesn't mean they're not talented. That doesn't mean they're not leaders. And I love how the modern-day theologian Tim, Kel- Tim Keller says this. And this is what's going to get some people all fired up, but I believe this to be true. It says, God forbids one kind of role in the church to women, as he did in Israel. Just one role. And we must not jump f- from that to forbidding all teaching and task to women. And we shouldn't assert all sorts of specific tasks are off l- limits to women, right? For example, he says, working outside the home, teaching males over 12, speaking from the front of the church services, etc. He's like, there's a bunch of things that we try to make these rules to, right? He goes, it's better to say this, that everything a man who isn't an elder can do, a woman can also do. That's amazing. And I get when we say that there's tension from people listening and there's tension from what we may have believed because there's two great myths that culture creates. One, that there's no difference in genders. That's a great mythology because scripture shows us that there's two different roles. The other one is that males are greater in authority than women. Right? And then they lesser women. That, that's the other thing. that we, we fall in those two spectrums over and over again. And, and what we have to understand is, yes, these roles are different, but different roles doesn't mean lesser roles. Right? Different means different, not lesser than. Right? And, and sometimes we, we just kind of get that mixed up. Right? And if, if I was thinking about this right before the sermon, if we want to lead from authority or whatever, like, man, I think the women have the ultimate trump card. Like, they have this super ability to grow a baby in them, and we can't do that, right? That's a trump card, right? But, man, different roles doesn't mean lesser roles. What does it mean? It means different. And and if we don't believe, if you don't believe this in empowering women, I want you to look at Jesus. Because the way Jesus treated his mom the way Jesus treated women when he encountered them, such as a Samaritan woman at the well, such as the woman who was bleeding, he, he empowered them. Jesus treated women different than society did. Jesus treated women with respect. He didn't treat them as they were lesser. So women can be leaders like Deborah, right? Some women are going to be like JLs. They're not going to be stay-at-home parents, and that's fine. But we can't weaken the roles because lesser, different doesn't mean lesser. It just means different. And what's amazing is when we all fill these roles of the church, the church is better because we're better together, right? We're better together. And it's different roles, but it's not lesser roles. And before we move on, I just want to say this to the ladies and just what this communicates, this story. There's three things I really want to talk about. One, God has a calling on your life, and it's not to sit on the sidelines. God has a calling just like he had Deborah. Deborah's calling in her life. And the question is, are, are you stepping into that calling, right? Whatever that calling is. Two, and Deborah, you see, you see that you are a spiritual, you are a leader with spiritual authority, right? You, you have authority as a woman to lead, right? And, and we're all leaders in some capacity. And finally, you can do all this while respecting God's order. Deborah's a perfect example of that. And we went through it with how she was, you know, re- referred to a- as her husband's wife, right? And, and how she let Barak take the lead that God has given her, right? You can do all this. And you can be leaders and, and, and have authority and do all this stuff that God's calling you to while respecting the roles that God has in place. And men, if you have a Deborah in your life, you know what you should do? You should platform her just like her husband did. Right? We, her, her husband allowed her to do what that was, she was doing, right? We got we to gotta do that. So we can't weaken the roles of women. The second thing we see in this kind of, this whole story in chapters 4 and 5 is you see, when leaders lead, God's people flourish. 
So if you go to the song of Deborah and like verses like 15 and 17, they start listing all the tribes that went and helped, and they start listing all the tribes that didn't. And in verse 17, she says, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. They didn't come help. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Why did they all hang out by the ships? And Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves, right? She's like, you guys missed what God was doing. Some of the tribes went, and the the men and the the women of the tribes, they followed God's lead, and they led, and guess what? They experienced God's blessing and something amazing happened. But these people, and I, I want to I just notice here, says they linger by the ships. So we just talked to the women. Let, let's talk to men for a second, right? As we got, women are leaders and men are leaders, but I want to talk to the guys for a second. It's really interesting. It says they lingered by the ships. Didn't say they did anything wrong. Didn't say they broke a law. Didn't say they were smoking dope. Doesn't say they were, you know, being unfaithful. It just said they were lingering by the ships. They didn't do anything. And that nothingness created issues. And someone once said, the great temptation in the church for men, not just the church, the church is all, the great temptation to men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. That's the great temptation. To do nothing in the home when it comes to leading. Do nothing in the schools. Do nothing in work. That's the great temptation. And maybe one of the biggest issues that we have is not that we have a bunch of bad guys in the world or bad Christian men. They're not bad, but they're just hanging by the ships when they ought to be leading out in the fight. They're just doing nothing. Right? They're just hanging out, right? They're just hanging out by the ships. We don't know what they're doing, but maybe that's the issue. And, and scripture tells us that we, we have an enemy, a roaring lion, who's looking to devour us. And, and he's like looking for someone to devour. And men, you know who that someone is? It's your wife. It's your kids. It's your grandkids. It's your brothers and sisters. It's the people sitting next to you. And we're in this battle. And, and God says, we're in this battle, and I want you to do something, but you're just hanging out by the ships, not doing anything. The great temptation to men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. And me and Ashley were talking about this today, and I'm like, you know, we, we embrace that God has different roles for us, and it's like, I don't always know why. I don't always know why guys can do this, and guys, women can't do that, but I just trust what God says. But then studies like I'm about to share with you come out, and it, and it shows that we're in this need, this dire need of godly leadership. So there's this study that they did some years ago that they looked at Christian homes and Christian households, and they found this to be true, and this was what happened in the study. It said that if the kid, so for my example, in my life, if the, if the child is the first one to go to church, right, there's a 3% chance that the family will come. 3%, not very big, right? If the mom was to do that, or the woman, woman leading the family, right, would do that, right, then there was a 17% chance, okay? This is where it gets crazy. If the father took the initiative in going to church and in faith and Christianity, there was a 93% chance that that family would go with him and become Christians as well. You got three, the 17, the 93. And why would that be? It's almost as if God created that way. And that's why leadership is so important and godly leadership is so important. We need leaders in, the, in this world. We need godly leaders in this world who aren't just hanging out by the ships. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We gotta get off the sidelines. And, and what happens when we do 
is God's praise. And the world is as it should be and the church is as it should be. In a couple verses in Deborah's song, she says the very same thing in chapter 5. And I think it's verse 2. She says this, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. God gets praised when leaders lead, men and women. But with guys, the world is as it should be when leaders lead the way we're supposed to lead. And when I say lead, I'm talking about godly leadership, right? You know, one of the verses in Ephesians 5 talks about women submitting to men, and that really means in the context of marriage. But what, it, what we see in the Bible is that we're supposed to be godly leaders. And godly leaders are sacrificial leaders. They don't, they don't lead because, hey, I'm the leader and you should follow me. That's not, how, that's not godly leadership. That, that's dictatorship and that, that's nowhere in scripture, right? But they, they sacrifice. It says, husbands, actually, you're to lay down your life for your wife like, the, like Jesus laid down his life for the church, right? That's what it says. You're to be humble. You're to be patient. You're to be kind. You're, you're to empower. You're, you're to love. You're to be forgiving. You're to lead. You're to set the standard and set the example. And when guys lead that way, guess what happens? People want to follow that leadership. I'm not a woman, but I would imagine that's the type of guy you want to marry. That's the type of guy's dad wants their daughters to marry. That's godly men. And there are plenty of guys out there in the world, but we need men. And this story also shows us this. Deborah was leading, and she was fulfilling her role. And she says, Barak, you got to lead. Other tribes of Israel, you got to lead. Men, you got to lead this, your tribes out into the fight. And when, God, when you do, God is praised. The third thing that we see in this story is that God uses willing, faithful people. Right? And one of the things that God does best is he uses the unexpected. We talked about that for so many weeks now. And we see Barak. What was Barak's resume? Didn't really have one, right? Like he just, We just know that he showed up, that he was faithful, and he was willing. What was JL's resume, right? She, she put the spike through that guy's head, right? What was her resume? Well, we just know that she showed up, and she was willing, and she took advantage of the moment, right? God called. She's like, hey, here's the enemy. I'm just going to put the stake right through his head, right? That's what I'm going to do. She showed up. So the next time God takes roll call and calls you to step out and step up, do it, right? Just do it. Like, don't, hang out, don't hang out by the ships. Don't, don't linger in the ships. Just step out and step up. When God says, hey, I'm looking for willing people. Are you willing? Raise your hand. He's like, yep, yeah, I'm here. The next time God takes roll call and calls you to step out or step up, do it. Don't hang by the ships. Just be willing to step out in faith, right? So we see that. And then we see a bigger narrative going on. And the fourth point that we see going on, and every one of these stories almost points to a bigger narrative of Scripture. And it's this. God will right the wrongs. At the end of Deborah's song, it's almost like they're mocking Sesera's mom. She's, she's looking out the window and she's like, where is my son? And it says in the song, I think it says princes or someone comes to her and they say, are they not fi finding dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. What the person tells Cesar's mom was like, hey, they, they won that battle. Come on now. They had 900 iron chariots. Aren't they out enjoying their victory now? Aren't they going out and finding a, a woman or two for each of them? Aren't they going out and taking advantage of women? Aren't they out going and taking advantage of the Israelites? Aren't they dividing their spoil? Because that's what they did. Because Cesara was an evil man. He would do things to people that no one should do to anybody. And Deborah says, not today. 
Not today. She says, justice was served. You've been treating all these people wrong for 20 years. But today, justice was served. And it was served by a spike being driven through your temple. Mama, your son ain't coming home is basically what she's saying, right? He's not, she's not coming back. He's not coming home. Justice was served. And we know in this life, justice isn't always served, right? It's just not. But there's a promise in Scripture that one day all wrong will be right. All wrongs will be right. right? God will, will, will fix everything. And what we're told is one day, in Revelation we're told this, it says that one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older order of things has passed away. There's a promise that eternity is coming and it's probably closer than you think. And, and the promise is this, that someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring justice in this world. And he's going to bring justice by heaven and hell. Some of us are going to, he's going to, we're going to be judged for the way we lived. And some of us are going to have accepted him and he's going to look at us. And, and we're going to say, hey, he's going to say, hey, look at you. You're wiped clean by my blood. I'll see you in eternity. And the others of it, the people who may have not repented, the people who have not believed, justice will be served that way too. And the question becomes, how will everything be made okay? How is this possible? And the answer is the cross. And the cross proves two things to us. That all wrongs will be righted. And the wrongs that you have done personally were put on Jesus' head. Deborah points to this. Because like Deborah, like Jael, like all the other judges, Jesus is going to bring right to the wrong by the cross. Right? He went to the cross for you and I. And when his blood poured out and the nails went into his hands, they were also the nails that were meant for you and I. And the promise is this. Jesus, God is saying, if you step up into this, if you step into this, this work that Jesus has done, when your judgment comes, I will look at you and all your wrongs will be righted because of the work of my son. So he's saying, roll call. Are you willing to step into the work that Jesus has done? The Israelites had to step into the work that Deborah and Barak and Jael have done. But ultimately, you and I have to step into the work of the cross. And God says, I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you eternity. I'm offering all your rights to be wrong. Because it was your wrongs that nailed my son to the cross. But I'm offering you a new chance. Now will you step up? And he's saying, you ready? Put your hands up. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for what you have given us, God. In just a few moments after I say amen, God, we're going to take communion. And it's the opportunity to remember that Jesus rights the wrongs. God, it's an opportunity to remember that there is eternity waiting for us. God, there's, there's a time to remember that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. And all we have to do is accept that. So as we take communion today, Father, help us remember this, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made. Father, we also thank you for the women in our church and the, and the men in our church, Father, and, and we pray that we step into the roles that you have called us to and designed for us because we are better together. To your name we pray, amen. It's been great hanging out with you guys today. I hope that message challenges you and encourages you today. We would love to have you on campus sometime at one of our services at 8.30 or 10.45 on Sunday. Or to find out more information about RSEC, you can always go to the RSEC Family app or follow us on any social media platform at RSEC Family. 
Most of all, remember, you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says you matter. Now go and be blessed.